0: Hello, I'm Terrence McNally, and welcome to Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. Two conversations today. In the first half, I'll be speaking with Tom Hartman, internationally syndicated talk show host, about the newest book in his Hidden History series, The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living, Exploring the Roots of Our Political Society and Our Constitution in the Systems and Cultures of Native Americans. Having read this one, I'd recommend them all. You can learn more at tomhartman.com. That's T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N.com. In the second half, I speak with Erwin Chemerinsky about the Supreme Court's recent term. I see ethical challenges and radical rulings. The law of the land interpreted through religious and moral lenses, overturning legislation and precedent, hardly conservative behavior, stretching and distorting the law in their decision-defending arguments, imposing their agenda on the nation with little regard for real-world consequences, the common good, or the future. Erwin Chemerinsky is dean of Berkeley Law School, and his latest book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. And you can learn more at law.berkeley.edu, and then search for Chemerinsky. On Free Forum, we explore the lives, the work, the ideas of individuals that I suspect have pieces of the puzzle of a world that just might work. We look at politics, economics, environment, science, health, culture, all based on the fact that I believe we can do better, and I want to find out how. The show streams weekly on the Progressive Voices Network on TuneIn.com, and podcasts are available anytime, anywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, most major podcast sites, and at my site... TerrenceMcNally.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net. I shared some of the surprising information in The Hidden History of American Democracy with four of my brothers and sisters on our weekly family Zoom call. They were as excited as I was to learn that Enlightenment thinkers might trace some of their ideas from Native Americans and the provocative inferences that one can make from that. I told them about the popularity and influence of books chronicling the political systems of some of America's natives, and the quotes Hartman includes of writings and exchanges among the European intelligentsia and their counterparts across the Atlantic, Jefferson, Franklin, John Adams, even Thomas Paine, extolling the virtues of the native model of society. And he writes on page one, as Europeans began driving deep into the American landscape throughout the 17th and early 18th centuries, stories began to trickle back to Europe about people who had figured out how to live in civilized society without the chains of oppression, both political and religious, that were the hallmarks of that era. And here's a quote from Paine that Tom features at the front of the book. To understand what the state of society ought to be, it is necessary to have some idea of the natural and primitive state of man, such as it is this day among the Indians of North America. There is not in that state any of those spectacles of human misery which poverty and want present to our eyes in all the towns and streets in Europe. In 1770, Benjamin Franklin wrote, Happiness is more generally and equally diffused among savages than in civilized societies. No European who has tasted savage life can afterwards bear to live in our societies. Hartman makes the case, quote, While there's not a one-to-one correlation between the governing principles of, for example, the Iroquois Confederacy and the U.S. Constitution, the core principles animating both were nearly identical. Equality of citizenship... Government is legitimate only with the consent of the governed. Men who claim power through hereditary lineage or a direct line to the gods must be limited in the power they can acquire or possess. Greed and unbridled power are evils. Society's highest obligation is to care for all its people, not merely to serve those with the highest status or wealth, unquote. And he takes an even wider view. Quote, democracy, it turns out, is the default state of virtually every animal species on earth, and humanity is no exception. Only with the power of great wealth, control of media, or the force of arms and technology is it overcome by dictators, popes, and kings. When I finished sharing some of the highlights, my sister, who lives in Atlanta and is quite politically active, said, Well, I'm afraid those secrets are going to stay hidden. I think what she meant was that if I was just finding out some of this, and my sibs were just finding out some of this, and we are progressive and fairly well-read and curious, that most of this knowledge would remain hidden from most people. Their basic response, those are great ideas and good policies, but how in the hell is any of that going to happen? Tom, when my sibs asked me how you see us reclaiming the fuller democracy of the Native Americans or of the founders, I pointed them to part four, a 21st century democratic agenda, where you list 21 actions, including making voting a right instead of a privilege, regulating the Supreme Court, expanding the Senate by adding states, abolishing the Electoral College, and so on. They were hoping For strategies, tactics, ways of shifting the exercise of power in ways that would make such things possible. In fact, the only one of your recommendations that responds to that question is number 21, get involved. It felt a little like you had offered us a treasure map with actual treasure at the end, but the treasure is buried on an island and we have no way to get to the island. Now, you could answer, of course, well, you could go by boat or by raft or by plane or by helicopter and so on. And, and, and we could say the same thing about America. It's not impossible that we could vote in different people and change the rules. Right now, it just feels that way. I guess if you could mobilize seniors motivated by Social Security, health care and housing and young people motivated by student debt, Roe v. Wade, climate change and housing, and both by Republican and Supreme Court overreach, it's conceivable that in 2024 you could win the presidency, both houses of Congress, and a few more governorships and state houses. But even if folks show up to vote them into power, it would take a much more aggressive and radical set of Democrats willing to go big and make the most of the opportunity. And I use radical here not to mean wild and woolly, but but its early definition concerned with the roots of things. So much to talk about, so much to learn. I'm struck by the value of the two very different sections in this book, parts one to three, the history, especially the role played by Native American political society, and part four, the prescription for actions to take, policies to fight for. Since the hidden history is harder to find elsewhere, it is the hidden history after all. We'll focus on that and leave a bit of time at the end to run through some of the recommended actions on your small d democratic agenda. Tom Hartman is an internationally syndicated talk show host whose shows are available in over half a million homes worldwide and the best-selling author of 24 books. One, Attention Deficit Disorder, A Different Perception, sparked a national debate on ADD, ADHD and neurological difference. Another, Rebooting the American Dream, was delivered by Bernie Sanders to his 99 Senate colleagues and read aloud during his famous filibuster. Others include The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight and the 10 so far in the Hidden History series, including Hidden History of American Healthcare, Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment, Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. And we'll be talking today about the 10th, The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living. Welcome, Tom Hartman, to Free Forum, A World That Just Might Work. And let me tell listeners, we're recording this conversation July 11th. Well, thanks, Terrence. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. And let me tell people that this conversation is on Tuesday, July 11th. I always start with this question so folks get, they can, they can read your books, they can watch your, your shows. How did you end up where you are today when you look at how did you become today's Tom Hartman doing what today's Tom Hartman does?
1: That's a good question. I, I think most of it has been kind of reactive. Um, in uh, in the 90s, my son was diagnosed with ADHD and I thought the diagnosis was uh, destructive the way it was presented to him. And so I went on a research binge and came up with this theory of ADHD as, you know, genetically hunters and farmers and wrote a book about it, and it became a bestseller. Um, in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s, as the George Bush uh, uh, phenomena was coming along, I started writing uh, about politics uh, explicitly, mostly for CommonDreams.org. And in 2002, uh, in December 2002, I published a, a piece called Talking Back to Talk Radio, which, uh, yeah, because I used to work in radio. My first real job, I was 16. I got a job as a weekend DJ in a country western station. And I worked in radio and radio news for a decade. And, you know, I, I, I thought that there was a, a way that you could actually make money doing progressive talk radio. They're, you know, the country's 50-50. Um, why do we have 1,500 conservative stations and not a single progressive one at that time outside of the Pacifica network, which was pretty dysfunctional? And so I wrote this uh, op-ed and it became the business plan for Air America Radio. Um, you know, the people who started Air America read read my article and called me up, flew me out to Chicago. And and so then I, I started my program as proof of concept. I had sold a business and retired and uh, had some spare time and, and uh, thought, you know, what the hell? I used to do radio. Um, and if I can make this successful, it'll show other people that it can work. And so uh, even this was a year before Air America got off the ground. I started the program in, in Montpelier, Vermont, and in my living room. And uh, within a year, had it on 27 stations and, and a small network that was owned by the UAW and uh, on, uh, on Sirius uh, uh, satellite radio. And, and, you know, it was never intended to be a big project or a business. I was retired. I had sold a business. I, I thought I was just going to, you know, write books and have a good time and travel. And it's turned into this beast. It's it's consumed my life for 20 years now. Um, but, you know, I'm having a good time. And and uh, so I guess the, the short answer to your question is I, I've been reacting to things rather than sitting around deciding, you know, what what the big scheme is going to be.
0: Right. Um, by the way, I will say that I have asked that question of many people of great achievement and, 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 and all of that. And almost all of them say basically that. reactive, right. improv, that sort of thing. Yeah. The, the whole model of pick it out when you're you know 15 and go straight ahead is, is not how it usually happens. Yeah. Um,
1: Unless you're going to go to medical school or something. You know? Right. right. Career, that makes sense. But I haven't had a career. I've, I've had a hodgepodge <laughs> of occupations.
0: So why the Hidden History series?
1: I wanted, uh, when we originally uh, came up with this idea and pitched it to our, my my book agent, Bill Gladstone, um, the idea was, uh, Louise called them rainy day books. That was our original idea. And um, I got the idea actually from Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky uh, wrote, uh, you know, a number of, he's a linguist, and he wrote a bunch of books on language, and he wrote a couple of political books that were pretty thoughtful, but they were like. 500-page books, you know, and they were dense and they were hard to read. And and he had a very small but fervent following that that I was among. And um, then a small publishing company out of New York uh, got permission from him to essentially excerpt his books. And they came up with a series of short books on individual topics. And each one was about 60 pages it was uh, the company was like ten windows, four doors, or something. I yeah. windows. I, I have
0: a number of those books. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. And those books just exploded, you know. And that's what made Noam Chomsky famous was those little books. And 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 it wasn't that I was looking for something to make me famous, but yeah. I but I did get that you know if you want to reach a lot of people, uh, particularly in this era of the internet and all these distractions that we're surrounded with, that you can't do it with a 600 page book. And uh, so the proposal was to write a series of books uh, dealing with topics having to do with American democracy and our American form of government that, uh, you know, one topic per book. And each book could be re- could be read in a, you know, on a rainy day, you know, uh, uh, or on a weekend. Uh, none of them are longer than 160 pages, basically, of content. Right. And, and it's and not. And by the way, I mm-hmm. see the
0: bookcases behind you and I have not in I, I, I actually record in a closet because the the clothes baffle so well. Um it's good for the sound quality. But my my, my office has floor to ceiling bookcases. But boy yeah. when I saw that yours was 145 pages basically, I just loved it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And 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 for me it was a great relief. You know, I've I've written a lot of, you know, 200 300 350 page books and and very often you've got a publisher who who wants to buy a 90,000 word book. And you can really deliver your message in forty thousand words, and you end up, you know, filling the book with its examples and redundancies, and and uh, you know, with these little books, there's none of that. It's all, you know, there's no fat. It's all meat, and uh, and it was really refreshing to be able to write tight and uh, and to the point. Um, so I, I I think they're more readable, frankly, as a result of that, and they're certainly easier to write.
0: Right. Well, with it, condensing things and concision. Is a challenge. We know yeah. that. But still, I, I I, don't want any of my other guests to hear me say this. But usually the first two or three chapters, the last one, that's you the for me. Yeah. yeah. Usually, I've,
1: I, that's what they, I mean, we all learned that in high school, right? If <laughs> you're going to do a book report. Exactly. Read, read the first two pages of every chapter <laughs> and read the first two chapters in the last two chapters.
0: Yeah. And yeah, and all the work they put into to that middle part. Um okay. Why this one? Uh and 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 the particular slant you take, in other words, I can certainly see at this time of what I would consider endangered democracy writing about American democracy, but the particular slant you take um with your subtitle about uh you know, the ancient uh ancient wisdom. Mhm. Yeah, they,
1: I, I, uh, there's a couple of myths around our, our, our democracy that I wanted to blow up. Um, uh, in fact, there's a number of them that I wanted to blow up, you know, the, the whole the, the, this push for theocracy, uh, the stuff about, you know, guns and the Second Amendment. Um, although I wrote an entire hidden history book about that one. Um, but the main one was the idea that democracy is not a normal thing. That it's something that some smart uh, European thought up 3,000 years ago in Greece and uh, Aristotle blew it up and, you know, it, it was a failed experiment. Um, but, hey, maybe we could make it work here in America. If we try real hard because it just really requires smart people. And that and that's a, that, that kind of meritocratic uh, argument is really an argument against democracy. It's an argument for an elite governing class. And, uh, and and base and, and the foundation of a lot of conservative philosophy, whereas democracy is the opposite of that. Democracy is the wisdom of the crowd. It's uh, it's that the largest number of people participating in decision making almost always guarantees the very best, most resilient decisions. And in fact, there was a, a, a fascinating study that was published in Nature just last week or the week before last um, uh, of this, uh, some new archaeological work that's been done in Mesoamerica um, where they found that those uh, communities, that there's all these communities in, in Central America that are um, were not dictatorial, that were run in ways that were, we're now looking at the arc And some of these are communities of 100,000, 200,000 right, people. Right, right. This is not but just being, little gatherings. Right, no, and it's literally no evidence of poverty and no evidence of great wealth and these were you know run uh, democratically small d democratically as opposed to like the incas and the mayans and the and the and their imitators that were basically di- di- dictatorships and what they found was that those democratically run communities were more resilient when it came to everything from uh, droughts and floods to disease to uh, to attack by by non democratic communities that were you know trying to steal their resources and uh, so democracy, and, and that's why, you know, I, I tell the whole story in the book about um, uh, the biology of democracy, the, you know, the, the story of the red deer, that, that uh, virtually every animal species from ants to gorillas um, does group decision-making through democracy, 50% plus one. And when there's a risk, when there's a predator around, for example, it amps up to around two-thirds plus one. Um, which, by the way, both are exist in our Constitution. Right. This is and, and this is something that um, although science is only now proving it, um, you know, that that uh, school of fish, you know, I always thought they were telepathic. How does that entire school make a left turn all at once? Well, it turns out with every fin thing or flocks of birds with every wing beat, they're actually voting, you know, and 51 percent right. of them move two degrees to the right and the whole school or the whole flock moves to the right. So. You know, this is this is um, I think the, the idea that democracy is the default state for virtually all animal life and 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 important to us as humans. Um, it was a really really important message to, to to convey, and I wanted to really highlight that in the book. And then, you know, a lot of the solutions come out of that understanding that this that this really is the way we should live, and and therefore the things that the majority of people want really should you know we should be setting our sights at doing. Um, you know, the vast majority of Americans want you know uh, free or like a low low cost healthcare available to everybody in the country. The vast majority of Americans want good quality public education all the way up through PhD and MD at at, at little to no cost. And it's not because people are you know want freebies. It's like these are these these should be considered the commons. Um, the vast majority of Americans, I, I, I could go on, you know, yeah. wants Social Security strengthened and things like that, but we're not getting it, and we're not getting it because we've got basically an oligarchy, uh, you know. Right now, Jimmy Carter, on my program seven years ago, said America is no longer a democracy; it's an oligarchy uh, because of Citizens United, with unlimited political bribery. Jimmy Carter said, and 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 I, and I point that out in the book that the Supreme Court. Um, uh, in fact, I wrote a whole book about that too, the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. But basically the Supreme Court inserted uh, cancerous poison into our body politic with their decisions in in 78 and the Bellotti decision in 2010 with Citizens United saying that corporations are people and that money is the same thing as free speech. And you know we need to do something about that because it's poisoning America.
0: Right. Oh God, I have so many responses. One thing is I want to uh, direct people to a couple of, uh, of books. That uh, make the point um, about animals, um, which is uh, Rucker Bregman's *Humankind* and Brian Hare's uh, *Survival of the Friendliest*, both yeah. which point out that of cooperation is what uh, what what animals use for survival, and it actually is why we've achieved as much as we have. Exactly. And, and and what and what you point out about the dictator or the oligarchy is, think about it. If it is truly democratic, then the agenda, the goal, the mission is to achieve what most want. You don't have the side agenda of how do I keep power? How do I pass it on to my children? How do I amass wealth? That agenda is off the table. Some of the stuff that was most surprising, I want to make sure we talk about, and as I say, People should definitely check out Part Four and and the actions that actually would bring us toward a a, 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 a democracy that favors well being for for the for the most. Um, but some of what you learned uh, uh, here in terms of Franklin, Jefferson, uh, Adams, and the European intelligentsia—just a little bit of that, a couple of nuggets of that—to whet people's appetite to grab the book.
1: I think that um, our history and the way that we've taught civics uh, basically stripped Native Americans out of our national understanding of the founding of this country altogether. And, uh, and, and and people's understanding of the founders, in fact, was that, you know, they were basically people who lived in a society of white people and enslaved people, and that was it. And in fact, you know, there were Native American communities all around uh, Virginia, you know, at the time of Jefferson and Madison and all around Massachusetts at the time. John Adams was living there and uh, and all around New York when Thomas Paine was there. And so the the, uh, the the really important thing, I think, is that people get that this is. This is a healthy, you know, that democracy is a healthy thing and that the Native Americans through literally tens of thousands of years of trial and error had figured this out. It was, you know, this is this is the result of of, uh, literally cultural evolution.
0: These are the tribes that survived.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and therefore, we should take their lessons very seriously. And and we and we fail to do so at our own peril.
0: And that the founders did. And that the European Enlightenment thinkers did. Yeah. Them yeah. Oh, crazy.
1: yeah. Jefferson. Jefferson's father was a mapmaker in Virginia. And uh, young Thomas used to follow Peter around the around the state uh, and, and he, they would stay with the Indians. They his father spoke several Native American languages. Um, uh, John Adams had close friends who were Native Americans, um, uh, as did Payne, as did George Washington, as how he know?
0: had an official role as as commissioner. For 30 years, American Franklin American. was the main
1: one of the main people connecting the governments of the United States and and the governments of New York State and other states with Native American communities. And, and these people lived among them. They knew them. They spoke their languages in many cases. And uh, and they had tremendous respect for them. And uh, and all so much of that has been stripped out of our uh, our national mythology and certainly out of popular literature and movies and things like that.
0: Yeah. And and I I don't think we say it to 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 just glorify or shine a a light on the Native Americans and their wisdom, but to show again where we've gone wrong, where we've gone off the path of what supplies well-being to the to the populace.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and, uh, uh, like I said, I think that we we ignore the lessons of a natural selection at our risk. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I think I think one could safely say that about just about anything. <laughs> there you go. Um, I know you've got to run, so we've got just a couple of more minutes. I'll I'll do my conclusion after you go. But um, if you can uh, connect the origin stories and the the, the traditions that, we, that that the Constitution is based on with some of the agenda you think is necessary to actually reachieve democracy. What I don't think we're going to get to is the other question that my sibs had, which is, well, wait, how is any of that going to happen in this United States? We'll, we'll leave that for another time.
1: Well, I, you know, my goal with this book was to connect those two things. You know, the, the 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 you know where we came from and where we should be going based on this understanding of where we came from and how we got here. Um, in terms of of how we're going to bring it about, I, I uh, am a big fan of uh, Neil Howe's uh, theory of the fourth turning. His his new book, The Fourth Turning, is here, uh, is uh, out this week, actually. Bill and Strauss
0: got, was a classmate of mine and a friend for years. Yeah,
1: I've got a galley of the book right here, and it's brilliant. Um, and uh, and then uh, Stanley Turchin, you know, his his writings, and and Howe is positing these eighty year cycles. Um, you know, 40 years conservative, 40 years uh, liberal uh, going back and forth. And and frankly, I think that we're at the end of the Reagan cycle. Uh, you know, it's why the last book was uh, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism and how you know, Reaganism gutted the American middle class. Um, and, and I think that uh, all we have to do is show up. It's not going to require some, you know, well thought out strategy or some secret plan or some, you know, uh, mind boggling uh, template or, or schematic. Um, we just have to show up. And uh, the times are with us, the the, the generational changes are with us. And and the 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 clarity of the of understanding of the mistakes that were made by the Reaganistas and and the the people who basically took America off track in 1980 uh, are now uh, undeniable, Uh, you know, ranging from macro stuff like climate change to micro stuff like, you know, uh, uh, making Social Security income taxable. And so, you know, I, I, I think that the, uh, a new day is coming. I really believe this. And, and the Zoomer generation coming up, you know, they're, they're like um, our generation was, the, the boomers. Um, they are very, very aware, very politically active. And uh, frankly, I think they're going to be the salvation of this nation.
0: And, and just very quickly to add on to that, and then I'll let you go. Um, they, uh, they are finding that young people, there was like a truism. 35 and up, you started getting more conservative. Not necessarily happening to that generation. And so I think if you have seniors upset about Social Security, upset about Medicare, upset about housing, young people, upset about student loans, upset about Roe v Wade, upset about housing, upset about climate change, they're they're there. and yeah. and and as you point out, the the mistakes are obvious. Um, yeah. Yeah, so we have a
1: coalition huh? We have a coalition. That's
0: something. right. That's right. So, again, the newest book is The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living. And the website is TomHartman.com. That's T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N.com. I'm going to let you go, Tom. Thank you so much and keep up your good work.
1: Thanks, Terrence. Great talking with you today. I appreciate the invitation.
0: We'll be back in just a few moments with the second half of the show when my guest will be Erwin Chemerinsky, Dean of Berkeley Law School. One of my favorite experts on the Constitution and the courts. A lot to talk about today as we review the Supreme Court's recent term which climaxed at the end of June with three radical, far-reaching, and controversial rulings on discrimination, student loan forgiveness, and affirmative action. Welcome back to Free Forum, a world that just might work. In this half, I'll be speaking with the Dean of Berkeley Law School, Erwin Chemerinsky. His latest book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. You can learn more about him and his work at law.berkeley.edu, then search for Chemerinsky. C H E M E R I N S K Y. I assume that listeners to this show have heard some of what I'm about to say before. Minority rule as practiced by today's Republican Party, cannot and will not respond effectively to the most critical challenges we face. Inequality, climate change, an unhealthy relationship with the rest of nature, pandemics and public health, social and racial division and tribalism, crippled government and endangered democracy. And I believe that sustained minority rule not only produces unpopular policies, but also weakens and sickens democracy breeding cynicism, resignation, and the sorts of tribal divisions we now face. The U.S. holds only one national popular vote, that for president and vice president, and the Republican Party has won that national vote only once since 1988. That's 35 years. Think about that. Yet they have held a presidency nearly 12 of those years, and currently also hold half the Senate, though they've received millions fewer votes than the Democrats in Senate elections. And as a result, they dominate the Supreme Court. And I think the Supreme Court is the form of minority rule that upsets me the most. Preparing for this conversation, at times I found myself feeling a visceral sense of impotence or hopelessness. A president who lost the popular vote nominates a justice who is confirmed by a Senate that represents a minority of the population. Brett Kavanaugh, for example, was confirmed by senators representing only 44% of the population. Democrats have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight elections, but during this time, the presidents of both parties have each appointed five Supreme Court justices. Since 1960, though the number of years each party has held a presidency are nearly the same, Republican presidents have named 16 Supreme Court justices, Democratic presidents have picked only nine. Some of that is structure of government, you know, the rules of the game, the Electoral College, the makeup of the Senate. Part of it is luck when lifetime appointees happen to die. And part of it I see as clearly illegitimate, the result of Mitch McConnell's extra-constitutional abuse of the system, refusing to deal with Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland and then rushing through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. In that Zoom conversation with my brothers and sisters, That I talked about at the top here. Talking about Tom's book, we all agreed that having been lucky enough or perhaps simply old enough to have had civics classes, we had learned about the three co-equal branches of government and about the founder's design of checks and balances, both of which he reveals are nowhere to be found in the Constitution. He points out, however, that the Constitution at the very least suggests by the order in which they appear in the document, that Congress comes first, followed by the executive and then the courts. And that is also the order of how democratic they each are, how representative they are of we the people. I turn to Erwin Chemerinsky when I want articulate and meaningful commentary and analysis regarding questions of justice, our legal system, and the courts. And since this will be a little less than a half hour, we will move quickly. But Professor Chemerinsky is so clear and concise in his thinking that it's always more than worth it. Erwin Chemerinsky became dean of Berkeley Law in mid-2017. From 2008 to 2017, he was the founding dean and distinguished professor of law at UC Irvine School of Law. Prior to that, he was a law professor at Duke University and at the University of Southern California Law School. In 2017, National Jurist magazine named him as the most influential person in legal education in the U.S., Chemerinsky is the author of more than 200 law review articles, and his books include The Conservative Assault on the Constitution and The Case Against the Supreme Court. His latest is, worse than nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism. In it, he points out that the primary purported benefit of originalism is in constraining judges, preventing them from deciding cases according to their personal moral preferences. But does it achieve that goal? I'd forcefully say no when it comes to the current 6-3 majority. And assuming for the sake of argument that it does, then the next question must be, do the benefits thus gained outweigh the costs of limiting constitutional meaning to that from 1787 when it was written, or 1791 when the Bill of Rights was added, or 1868 when the 14th Amendment was ratified? Chemerinsky lists a number of rights that are considered to be constitutionally protected, that appear nowhere in the document. The right to marry, the right to procreate, the right to have custody of our children. You get the idea. Chemerinsky writes that originalism can be defined in a way that provides significant constraints on justices, but only at the price of unacceptable results. Along the way, he states that, quote, we can define judicial activism and restraint in functional terms. A decision is activist if it strikes down laws And restrained if it upholds them it is activist if it overrules precedent and restrained if it follows precedent it is activist if it rules broadly and restrained if it rules narrowly and then to look at the current court he cites district of columbia versus heller and citizens united versus federal election commission two hallmark cases of the roberts court one ruling for the first time that a law regulating firearms violated the second amendment and the other protecting the right to unlimited corporate spending in election campaigns. And he notes that each declares unconstitutional a law adopted in the legislative process. Each overrules precedent, and each was a broad ruling when the court could have ruled more narrowly. So you can see where conservative claims, originalist claims, fall by the wayside when actual decisions are made. The preface ends with these words, quote, Originalism is not an interpretive theory. It is just the rhetoric conservative justices use to make it seem that they are not imposing their own values when they are doing exactly that. My goal, he states, is to help expose originalism as a dangerous fallacy. Welcome Erwin Chemerinsky to Free Forum, a world that just might work. Let me tell listeners we're recording this interview Thursday, July 27th. It's a
2: pleasure to be talking with you. Thank you so much for the kind introduction.
0: So let me ask first for your response to the Supreme Court, the overall big picture response, its approach, its aims, its self-definitions, the rulings this term, its cumulative record so far. What's what's your sense of this court? This is the 6-3 conservative majority court.
2: It is a very conservative court. Is following the conservative Republican agenda in just the last couple of years. It's overruled Roe versus Wade and ended abortion rights after 49 years. It's eliminated affirmative action by colleges and universities for 45 years. It's provided for the first time the ability of people to violate anti-discrimination laws
0: on account of their beliefs. So, what we have is a series of radical opinions over the last two years with a clear agenda. And then let me add on to that, Professor Chemerinsky, your response to the the investigative reporting that has revealed all of the uh, ethical lapses.
2: I think it's important to separate the ideology
0: of the court
2: from the ethical issues surrounding the court. Ethics should have no ideology, it is unconscionable that the most powerful judges in the country are the only ones who aren't governed by a code of ethics. Every state judge, every other federal judge has a code of ethics. I think the ethical improprieties that have revealed, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, tarnish the court. And I think it is so wrong and unfortunate that when the Senate Judiciary Committee voted on creating a code of ethics for the Supreme Court, the Democrats voted in favor, and the Republicans on the Senate the Judiciary
0: Committee voted against. Ethics should not be a partisan issue. Right. Given that it didn't pass, it's, it's not going to pass the Senate, and Chief Justice Roberts has said it's unnecessary, um, do, is there any avenue for actually holding them to some ethical standards?
2: I would hope the intense public criticism for the lack of a code of ethics... And I would hope the Supreme Court's very low legitimacy and approval ratings might cause the court to on its own adopt an ethics code. If not, I think Congress is going to have to force the court to do so,
0: even if this isn't the Congress that will do that. Okay, so it may be a matter of time. If we're talking about this, this most recent term, uh, there were a few moderate rulings by the, uh, the court. Uh, in Harper versus Moore, they didn't go so far as to sanction the, um, uh, legis- the state legislature's right to overrule the popular vote. They told Alabama that it had to redraw a district uh, its districts to give blacks more representation, which the Alabama legislature is choosing to ignore. And then in the last week, they hit three big decisions that, uh, that you mentioned. Uh, in in your first answer. Let's talk first about Creative 303. Colorado web site designer seeks relief from the hypothetical request of a wedding invitation for a same-sex marriage, a ruling which elevates religious bigotry over civil rights. Your thoughts about that decision? I think it is a tragic decision that opens the door widely
2: to an exception to anti-discrimination laws. Is not just a case about people who discriminate on account of religious beliefs. It could be any beliefs. It's not just about sexual orientation discrimination. It could be about race discrimination. Anyone who's involved in what they claim to be expressive activity now won't have to follow state anti discrimination laws. Another way to put it, there's always a tension between liberty and equality. Any law that prohibits discrimination, by definition, limits the freedom to discriminate. For decades the Supreme Court has said that stopping discrimination is more important than protecting a freedom to discriminate. 303 Creative Versus Lenis is so troubling because the first time the Supreme Court has said there's a constitutional
0: right under the First Amendment to discriminate. and and, and so what's interesting here is as you point out, it isn't limited to religious beliefs, right? It's it's On what grounds does the claimant have to say, I deserve the right to discriminate? The claimant has to say that
2: he or she is involved in expressive activity. Of course, there's no one to be compelled to engage in expressive activity. So if somebody says, designing and baking a cake is my expressive activity, then they don't have to serve anyone they don't want to serve. If somebody says, cutting here is my expressive activity,
0: they don't have to serve anyone they don't want to serve. I mean, it, it's so it's so outrageous given, I mean, as you're saying those words, I'm thinking about everything we've seen since the early 60s where the right to discriminate was sort of taken for granted as as not possible in these United States. In all of the cases in the 1960s, that
2: involved anti-discrimination law, those who wanted to discriminate always claimed that they had a First Amendment right to do so. It was their freedom of association. Mm -hmm. It was their expression. And the Supreme Court always rejected that argument. It made clear that stopping discrimination is more important than a right to discriminate. In 303 Creative, the Supreme Court said that those who are involved in expressive activity can discriminate on any basis,
0: whether it's race,
2: sexual orientation,
0: and on the basis of any beliefs that they have. First of all, I'm thinking most people probably don't realize it was that broad. Um, As I stated at the start, religious bigotry trumping civil rights. But as you point out, it's, it's more about that freedom to express trumping freedom to do most anything. That's
2: right. This says no one can be forced to engage in expressive activity that they don't want to do. So if they don't want to serve blacks and they're involved in expressive activity, they don't have to. If they say my expressive activity is cooking food, or my expressive activity is making cabinetry, or my expressive activity is taking photos, they don't have to serve blacks or women or Jews or gays or lesbians or anyone else they don't want to serve.
0: Okay, I mean, I can't imagine what is going to happen next on this. I I guess our only hope is that if cases come up in that vein, that some of that 6-3 majority will have a change of heart. My guess
2: is that when the case comes up involving race discrimination, some of those 6-3 majority will have a change of heart. I think the fact that this is about sex orientation discrimination Reflects their underlying attitudes about that.
0: That's right. Yeah, and, and and so just to to just put a pin in your um, your current book or the the worse than nothing about originalism, um, which, as you point out, the, the 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 goal, the purported goal, is to keep people uh, judges from just enforcing their own moral opinions. This court in the last two years, it seems to me, has in a series of decisions done exactly that.
2: I think any court inevitably is going to produce decisions that reflect the ideology of its members. I think the hypocrisy here is that the conservatives are pretending they're doing something different when of course they're imposing their own values. This is the court that overruled Roe versus Wade like conservatives have wanted for decades. This is the court that expanded gun rights in an unprecedented way, like conservatives have wanted for decades. This is a support that ended affirmative action by college universities, like conservatives have wanted for decades. No one should believe that this support following some neutral law.
0: It's following the Republican platform. <laughs> it is. And and, and, and a, pretty, a pretty far right even version of the Republican platform. Okay, let's move to another decision then. The... Uh The student loan forgiveness. Uh, You've written in striking down the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness, the Supreme Court ignored one of the most basic principles of law. When the text of a law is clear, it must be followed unless it is unconstitutional. Explain. There's a federal statute, it's called the HEROES Act, and it says
2: that the Secretary of Education can, quote, waive or modify student loan obligations in an emergency. This is the authority President Trump used to suspend student loan repayment requirements early in the pandemic. President Biden continued it and then President Biden made it permanent. The text is clear. The Secretary of Education can waive student loan obligations. President Biden did this for about 43 million Americans, up to $20,000 per person in relief. As Justice Kagan said in her dissent, the statute can't, within the English language, be clear. That's right. And yet the
0: Supreme Court 6-3 to three, invalidated this. Now, one of, the, one of the things they used, another one, we've talked about originalism, another one of their doctrines, and I say there because I hadn't heard about it until they started calling on it, is their, what they call the major questions doctrines, which, if I'm not mistaken, is nowhere defined. Where does it come from? It comes from the Supreme
2: Court in very recently, yep. most law professors, most judges hadn't heard about it until very recently. The Supreme Court has invented this principle that in order for a federal agency to act on a major question of economic or political significance, there must be clear direction from Congress. The Supreme Court says, forgiving this much student loans is a major question of economic or political significance. There must be clear direction from Congress. But of course, here there was clear direction. That's right. Congress said the Secretary of Education can waive student loan obligations. But that wasn't specific enough to
0: satisfy Chief Justice Roberts and the conservative majority. And the danger, it seems to me, with this major questions doctrine is you can, if you want, as a justice or a group of justices, a majority of justices, decide anything might be a major question and then decide, as they did in this case, that the direction is not clear enough, specific enough.
2: That's exactly right, because the Supreme Court has never defined what's a major question of economic or political significance. The Court's never defined what's enough guidance from Congress to meet this doctrine. I was speaking in Washington, D.C., and a number of lawyers came up to me and said, their clients now believe that everything is a major question. Anything that an agency's done, regulating health or safety, or the environment, regulating business. They want to argue is a major question, and Congress wasn't sufficiently specific. This has opened the door to challenges to every kind of federal regulation.
0: Yeah, I hope people hear that. Every kind of federal regulation, and as I pointed out in, in, in the introduction, we have a number of crises, and if you just looked at climate change or environmental health, um, this this notion that something like the clean water act is not specific enough to govern that stream or that wetland is really dangerous congress inevitably has to give broad delegations of power to agencies
2: congress can't regulate the specific amount of water pollutants that will go into the river or the amount of a particular kind of pollution that go into the air that's why we have agencies and what the Supreme Court is doing in a very conservative direction is limiting the power of agencies to follow federal statutes and to protect the environment, to protect health and safety, to protect us from unscrupulous business
0: practices. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's to me, it's a notion that if you sat around as a bunch of, you know, first year law students and somebody threw this out that people would go, that's that's ridiculous, it's absurd. Congress couldn't rule that specifically, they they don't have time, (laughs) it's just impossible. And yet they have decided that this is the way the U.S. government should function, though it hasn't functioned that way for its history. The Supreme Court only twice in all of American history,
2: both times in 1935, found a federal law to be unconstitutional because Congress had delegated too much power to the administrative agencies. Since 1935, without exception, the Supreme Court has allowed broad delegations of power because it's the only way that agencies can deal with the problems facing society. It's the only way that Congress can deal with urgent social problems. But now the Supreme Court is very much limiting what agencies can do, especially when they're doing things that conservatives don't like like regulating greenhouse gas emissions or providing student loan
0: relief. Okay, let's finally turn to affirmative action. Um, you have written from an originalist perspective, affirmative action is clearly constitutional. There's no basis for concluding that those who wrote the Constitution or who drafted and ratified the 14th Amendment ever meant to re- create a requirement for colorblindness. And yet that is what they've turned to, uh, as they did in overturning the section of the Voting Rights Act a few years ago.
3: The framers of the
2: 14th Amendment adopted many programs that were race-based. The Freedmen's Bureau, programs to help those who were black soldiers, and so on. So if one really wanted to follow originalism, it's clear that the original understanding of the 14th Amendment allowed what today we would call affirmative action. But of course, the conservatives on the court, consider those originalists, don't pay any attention to that. They're following their ideology, not the original meaning of the Constitution.
0: Okay, let me just say thank you, Erwin Chemerinsky, and keep up your good work. Thank you for having me on, and I'm
2: always glad to talk
0: to you. Again, the newest book is Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism, and the website is law.berkeley.edu. Then search for Chemerinsky, C-H-E-M-E-R-I-N-S-K-Y. Also, thank you to our first guest, Tom Hartman. His newest book is The Hidden History of American Democracy, Rediscovering Humanity's Ancient Way of Living. And the website is TomHartman.com. That's spelled T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N.com. For this conversation and many other interviews and articles to join me in pursuit of a world that just might work, go to TerrenceMcNally.net or AWorldThatJustMightWork.com. They're the same website. That's terrencemcnelly.net, T-E-R-R-E-N-C-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y.net, or aworldthatjustmightwork.com. If you want to receive my weekly email announcement of guests and issues, plus usually 10 to 15 links to articles, I choose each week to flesh out the conversation, sign up at my site, or email me at temcnally at mac.com. T-E-M-C-N-A-L-L-Y at mac.com. You can also subscribe and listen to the Free Forum Podcast at Apple Podcasts and most of those podcast sites. You can find years of podcasts at my site or at those sites. Listen anytime, anywhere. Archives include Michael Lewis, Naomi Klein, Bill McKibben, Van Jones, Connie Rice, Greg Boyle, George Packard, and so on. You can also follow me on Twitter. At McNally Terrence, thanks to Kiana Williams in production, George Vasilopoulos at Progressive Voices, and most of all to you, my listeners. Please share this podcast widely.
4: Just because abortion is legal does not mean it is accessible, and we should be building a landscape where all people can have access to the care that they need. 911,
3: what's your emergency?
4: America's healthcare system
2: is broken, and people are dying.
3: Welcome to Code WAC, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. this time on Code Whack. How have health clinics that perform abortions been affected by the reversal of Roe v. Wade one year ago? What kind of legal challenges have there been to individual states' limitations on abortion since then? To find out, we spoke to Kat Duffy, a policy analyst in the National Health Law Program's Washington, D.C. office. She holds a doctorate and works on reproductive and sexual health care access and services with a special focus on abortion coverage and access. This is the second part of our recent interview on the state of abortion access in America. Welcome back to Code Whack, Kat. What kind of impact has the reversal of Roe versus Wade had on health clinics that perform abortions?
4: Last time we spoke, you mentioned that some of them have closed down. Yeah, a lot of clinics have closed or shifted to providing other sexual and reproductive health services. But even those centers like still face attacks due to the stigma associated with being an abortion provider, even if they're no longer actually providing abortions, which is really sad. But there's another study that's currently being conducted by answer. It's called the Care post row Study. And they actually just published some preliminary findings. And the study is focused on figuring out how clinical care has changed by documenting cases of care that were different from the usual standard of care due to abortion restrictions that went into effect since Dobbs. And the preliminary findings showed that like post-Dobbs laws and how they're being interpreted have altered the standard of care in ways that have contributed to delay delays in accessing care, worsened health outcomes, and increased The cost and logistics complexity of care. And it's because providers are understandably scared to provide care in situations where, like, the best course of action is to terminate a pregnancy. And so it's causing them to delay to ensure that they have, like, a situation that firmly falls into the sort of life endangerment category. Oh, no. And I also want to point out that, like, this is going to have a long term effect on, like, the healthcare infrastructure, especially especially in states that have banned abortion, because doctors don't want to work there anymore. A survey of current and future physicians was published earlier this year, and 76% of the respondents said that they would not apply to work or train in states that had abortion restrictions. And a different study from the American medical colleges said that States with abortion bans saw a larger decline in medical school seniors, folks who were applying for residency in 2023, compared with states without bans. And in general, overall, there was more than a 5% drop in the number of applications for OBGYN residencies. So it's like very clear this is having an actual impact on the practice of medicine. Oh, wow. That's alarming.
3: What kind of legal challenges have there been to either Dobbs versus Jackson? Which reversed Roe versus Wade or to individual states' limitations,
4: and have any of them been successful? So there have been a ton of litigation around state bans. Some has been successful, some hasn't. And there's honestly like too much to get like deep into the weeds on it, and it's a constantly shifting landscape. So I'll just give some highlights as of May 2023. A total of 38 cases had been filed challenging abortion bans in 21 states, and 28 remain pending. And there have been some wins. So. So the South Carolina Supreme Court held that its state constitution protects the right to an abortion and permanently blocked a six-week abortion ban that the legislature had passed and it found that it violated the state's right to privacy. And in Utah, a state court temporarily blocked a law that would have likely forced all the health centers in the state that provided abortion services, it would have forced them to close. And the the last one that I would highlight is in Montana, the state Supreme Court permanently struck down a restriction that would have prohibited non-physician clinicians from providing abortion services. And it also blocked several abortion bans and a regulation that would have effectively eliminated abortion access for Medicaid enrollees. So all of those were like very large wins in terms of preserving access. But there have also been some decisions that have harmed access. The Idaho Supreme Court upheld the state's trigger ban and a uh, six-week ban that the state had implemented and held that the state constitution doesn't provide implicitly a fundamental right to abortion because such a right is not deeply rooted in the state's traditions and history. I'm not going to talk more about the losses because that's depressing. So instead, there are a couple of resources where folks can go the Brennan Center for Justice has a really good litigation tracker that is updated regularly. And the Kaiser Family Foundation also has one. And they separate it into both state and federal litigation, which is very helpful. Thank you, Cat Duffy.
3: Do you have a personal story you'd like to share about our WAC healthcare system? Contact us through our website at heal-ca.org. Don't forget to subscribe to Code WAC wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find us on ProgressiveVoices.com and on Nurse Talk Media. Code WAC is powered by Heal California, uplifting the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. I'm Brenda Gazar.